Well, great, great to see you guys tonight. You guys ready to jump in? All right. Um, set it up with this. I used to, uh, I used to go to Talbot. Uh, that's where I did my graduate studies. And um, sometimes I would have evening classes. And instead of driving, like getting on the I-5, have you driven that like at 5 or 6 at night? You just don't want to. It's a parking lot. You'll sit there for a while. So I did something. I used to drive uh, to Disneyland. I had a pass. And I would sit over there. And I, I found uh, there was a couple spots. I would literally just sit and study until about uh, 8 or 9 o'clock at night when the park would close. I would leave. And so I would get a lot of my studying done, then drive, I'd much rather drive in the freeway when it's wide open. And I'm one of those personalities, I love activity going on around me, and I can kind of zone out, but it helps me stay alert and awake as I study. So it was a great marriage, Disneyland and seminary, amazing. Um, so I did that, and usually at night you'd hear the announcement, the closing announcement, hey, the park is closing, get out. And uh, so this one night I'm sitting there reading, and I looked at my watch, and it was past closing time, and I didn't hear the announcement. I Either they did it or I forgot to do it or I was too involved in what I was reading and I didn't hear it. I don't know what it was. But I'm literally way back by this ride called Splash Mountain. It was in, they used to have a little fern grotto back there with these chairs. And I, I would sit and I would read. So I'm walking out and I'm realizing there's not a soul in this park. Like I'm literally, I think I'm the last guest. And there's like employees leaving. They have their backpacks on. I have mine on. Uh, and they think I work there. Like, hey, have a good night. Oh, yeah. We'll see you tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah, we'll see you tomorrow. Uh, it's kind of... It's this, it was kind of this weird, fun moment. So I'm walking out, and I get to Main Street, and now this is really weird because there's security kind of lining the streets, and these lights are flashing, and nobody is, there's hundreds of people walking up Main Street, not out. So I, I don't know, did, is there some bomb scare? I don't know what's going on. But they didn't look panicked. It looked like they were ready for a good time. I'm the only guy walking against the flow. I don't know what's going on. And so my curious, I couldn't handle it. I had to get, so I just kind of joined in with everybody. I want to see what's going on. So they go up Main Street and they go into Tomorrowland. Well, it turns out it's a private cast party for everybody who created the, redid prom, or Tomorrowland. And, and it was this big private cast party. So I, I mean, I wasn't invited. So of course I stayed. Um, <laughs> I want to check this place out. And they had like, it was like they had the lights on in Space Mountain. You could go to like Star Tours and all the lights were on. You could see how it works. It was just, it was just intimate behind the scenes look at Disneyland, stuff you'd always kind of crave to see. So I had, a, I had a great time. And it was one of those places you just feel really special because you're kind of where you're not supposed to be, but you get to be there. It's kind of fun. Um, I say that because we're going into John 17 tonight. This is one of those scriptures where if you, if you really stop and think about it, it's one of those places you're like, this is such a private place in scripture, a, a, a conversation that is so private that it's, you're really privileged to be there. You almost feel like, maybe I shouldn't be here. But... The disciples, there's other people that were around to hear Jesus when he had this conversation with his father. It really is a prayer. And it's this, it's, it, basically, let me just give you the timetable. It's really, it comes like chapter, uh, if you look at chapter 17 and chapter 18, you, we know the timetable somewhere in there. It's, it's literally the last hours of Jesus' life. He has just had um, the last supper, the last meal with his disciples. Great conversation, final teaching. He leaves. He's going to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where he, he, he kneels, he prays, and prepares to go to the cross. But on this journey there, um, the city of Jerusalem is set up, and there's this valley. It's called the Kidron Valley. And to get to the Gethsemane, you had to go through the Kidron Valley. And it went it's down this ravine, and it goes back up. But the ravine was directly on the outside of the temple. And there was, this, there was this, uh, this trough that basically went from the temple mount and it drained out into the ravine. And what that was for is on Passover, which it was Passover. This is when they would all come and sacrifice a lamb. And because of the, such numbers of people, they estimate there's probably 256,000 lambs that were sacrificed. And so all those sacrifice, all that blood went down and drains out into that ravine. And this is the ravine Jesus is crossing. It's probably a little past midnight. Probably could still smell that. And all that, all those sacrifices pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, which is Jesus. He most likely stops in that ravine. He doesn't kneel. He stands and he prays. And he talks to the Father. And what you're going to be amazed to see is what was on his heart. Really simple prayer, but a lot in it. Um, he prays for himself. 
He prays for his friends. You know what else he prays for? It's you. The church. It's, this is, it's a mind-boggling, it's a, it, it's a crazy experience. Um, we're going to tackle this whole chapter. But um, I just got to warn you. There's like an ocean of things we could talk about in this chapter. There really are. It's packed full. Um, we'll go through it all. I'm going to go through it, read through it. I'll make some comments as we go through it. But I'm going to try and drive out a driving theme that's through this whole chapter, through this whole prayer. As you take notes, you can take notes on whatever you want. I would encourage you, um, you don't necessarily need to grab all the content. But I want you to pay attention to the very things you think the Lord is kind of percolating in your own life, the things that you're catching and hearing. Pay attention to what he's speaking to you. Pretty confident we all will have something in this tonight. Um, As we jump in, what Jesus is really getting at, the question that's being answered is, if he prayed for you, he prayed for me. He prayed for all the people who would believe after he left. What was his prayer? What kind of people did Jesus really envision? What was on his heart? And as we go through this, you're going to see that he had in his mind that there would be this, this group of people that would live, their lives are so unique that there's something about it that it becomes irresistible and others begin to see it and catch it and they want to become part of it. Because when Jesus lived, that's how he had disciples. They, they followed him. They saw so much of what he did that even when they faced death, and some even church history records the death of their families, the last thing they do would be to turn their back on him because they knew it was true. And they were overcome by the love they experienced from Christ on earth. He says, my people will be marked by something amazing. So the way the outline is set up for you today there's, it says there's four questions that we can ask ourselves if we're really becoming the people God is really laying out for us to become. And I encourage you to take it out and you can follow along. Here's the first one. Number one on there. First question to ask is this. Is God getting the glory? Is God getting the glory? You know, we're an answer to Jesus' prayer when God's getting the glory. The word glory is mentioned eight times in this chapter. It's all over the place. You see it come up all over. What does glory mean? An easy way of defining this, it means to manifest hidden value, hidden treasure. Like you're making known something that is hidden, um, secret value or stuff that people may not even realize. I have a little boy. He's a year and a half. He brings me treasures all the time, Uh, a leaf, a rock. And I'm telling you, he's so excited. It's a treasure for him. And he's not ashamed. He'll show it. Is that a dirt clot? No, that's what the dog made. No, that is not good. Put that down. Uh, he'll bring anything, but there's an innocence about it. And for him, it's glorious. Like, oh, it's amazing. He found this thing. I love the innocence of it because there's something about our lives that's supposed to be pointing to something that's truly glorious. And it's a relationship. It's, a, it's the person of God. And almost in the same sense of innocence, our lives are reflecting that in a powerful way. Um, Look at verse 1 as we jump in here. It says this. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Now, what did he say? I'm not going to go through it all. This is where he taught about the Holy Spirit. This is where he said, my peace I'll leave you. My peace I'm going to give you. He had all these teachings he just finished uh, giving him. And then it says, he taught him, and now he prayed. Let me just say right there, that's already a good model for us. We could talk about that. You know, you have people you love in your life. You want to teach him, but I'm telling you, even Jesus prayed. He prays. He says, Father, praise to God the Father. God the Father, the time has come. Well, what time? The timetable of his death. He's going to the cross. Um, Just so you know, he was not tricked into the cross. He didn't get caught up in the moment. This was a divine plan. He prepared for it. And here's his prayer for himself. He says this, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Here's that word again, uh, dozazo. That's what the literal word is, and it just means to bring homage or praise, to manifest hidden value. So what is Jesus basically saying here? He's saying that, God, I want you to glorify me. I want you to show everybody the depth of my love for the world. I want you to glorify that. 
I want that to be known. I want your amazing plan of how you would redeem the world to be known. That's what glorify means. I want to show off how great my love truly is. That's the glory of God. He's glorifying the, the very design, the very plan of God. And his prayer in his final moments before he goes to the cross is let your glory be known. The love, the majesty, the wisdom of God in the cross itself. So for Jesus, the cross was not a place of shame. He was hung naked on the cross. He died on the cross. But why, was not that, why wasn't that a place of shame? Because he was innocent. And secondly, it was the greatest act of love that humanity had ever seen. It's God's greatest moment. It's when he said, I would go to this extent to show off how great the love of the Father, my love for the world is. This is my greatest moment that I would go to this extent to take care of you. That's what Jesus is praying. Glorify me so that the Father even would be glorified. Interesting as you go through this, he said, um, basically, God's revealing his love to the cross to you. As you're, we're going to find later in this chapter, God's desire is that your life, my life, would also give God glory. So he wants to reveal his glory through us. He's shown his glory to us. He wants to reveal his glory through us. That's in verse 21 to 23. It says, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me. Then it goes on to say, to let the world know that you sent me. So do you see this whole theme? The Bible talks about this in other places. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, so whether you eat, whether you drink, no matter what you do, do it for the glory of God. So our life is supposed to have the very same mission that God's life has. How are we in answer to prayer? That we manifest the hidden value of God. That we give him attention. That our lives literally draw attention to the creator, to the, magist or to the redeemer. Isn't that powerful? That's good stuff. Um, our danger, we like glory too, don't we? Don't you kind of like attention? Um, I had the great privilege of uh, jumping into Hollywood, I was in junior high, you know, auditioned. I'm sure many of you have seen me. You know, I did a, I did a Duncan Hines Browning commercial. You guys remember that? You remember that? I figured I put my uh, movie star looks and abilities to work, and you know, I did a commercial. It was one of those times. Uh, uh, I was terrible at this stuff, so obviously I didn't go into it. But I did a commercial, and I remember uh, even doing this commercial. I was sitting on this bench and eating brownies. Loved that as a junior higher. Loved that. Uh, but I would lean forward and make sure I could be in the camera shot. So I want to make sure. They're like, hey, you can just sit back. Uh, I, I want to make sure I'd be seen in that camera because I wanted a little glory for that. And I remember they would show this commercial, and it was being shown for a little while. And I remember every time that commercial came on, someone would say, it's on, it's on. I'd run in there, and it's just over. I, I, I miss it. I'd run in there, or the neighbors call, it's on. Uh, turn on. I, just, I never, to this day, I never saw that commercial. <laughs> I never got to bask in my moment of glory on TV. But there's something inside, like, do you, have you ever craved that? You want attention, you want glory? Um, there is something divine that begins to stir. We're designed to draw some attention, but not to keep it, but to reflect it. That's what this is saying. Our life actually should draw some attention, but in order that we could give it away. So a couple questions we can ask on this one about are we giving glory? Um, under that is, hey, is there any circumstance that God can use in your life right now to bring him glory? Do you have a job that, you could, that God will actually use to bring himself glory? Is there a role that you fulfill? We all fulfill lots of different roles in family, different relationships. Um, you know how you respond to things can give God glory? To disappointment. Delay, um, loss, all those things begin to draw some attention. As, as you submit to the Lord, he's going to do something through you. It will begin to bring him glory. So all of us have the ability to do it. Second question on it, is there anything in your life that you can give God credit for? Can you give God credit for anything? What are you good at? I'll start with that. You good at something? Um, we can get really hung up on that easily. Bottom line is, 
the creator creates us. Our abilities come from him. If you're good at it, recognize where that came from. You have an ability to make money. In fact, the Bible talks about that. It says God gives an ability to some people for that. Are you great with people? That's a gift. Um, what are you good at? Use it to reflect glory back to God. That's what it's there for. Number one, what's Jesus' answer to prayer? Is your life, my life, are we giving God glory? Second question, are you living in security? Are you living in security? Now, the immediate context in this prayer is he's praying for his disciples that are still on earth. Um, he's leaving. He's going to pray for them. They're in an evil world. It's a tough world. It's a world so much opposed to Jesus, and now they're carrying it on. So he's got to pray for them. They're in for it. So verse 11 goes on. Um, actually, let me just jump up before we get there. I want to mention a few other things. or I don't want to skip anything as we go on. We'll fit on the glory part. It says, for you, verse 2, for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. And he says this, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So what's eternal life? It's relationship. A lot of people freak out like, oh man, I can't imagine heaven, eternal life, like the same thing day after day, forever and ever. It's like cotton candy that never ends. It's not like that. You're not going to get sick of it. If you've ever had that experience where in your life you're like, you finally get a sense like this is what God is up to. This is, it's that little spark you get. It's that multiplied a thousand times over. He says in verse four, the theme of glory, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And it says, and now father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you. In the literal language, it says, I've revealed your name. When the Bible ever says, revealed your name, the reason it's translated like this, I've revealed you, because the name represented all of who God was, his character, his person, the relationship of God. So he says, I've revealed you to those whom you have gave me out of the world. So he's like saying, think of all the things that I've taught. Jesus said, I've shown you what the Father is really, really like. How to respond, how to deal with crisis. How to trust when you don't know how things are going to work out. Jesus modeled all those things. And then he's, he's going to list here what he prepared his disciples for. So he says, they were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you've given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believe you sent me. And he says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, they're yours. All I have is yours, all you have is mine, and the glory, here's that glory theme again, and that glory has come to me through them. So the pattern of glorification, that the son brings the father glory, and that the followers bring the son glory. It's a pattern that we follow. Our lives are meant to reflect the literal glory of God. Now, number two, are you living in security? Verse 11 says, I will remain in the world no longer. But they're still in the world. Well, who's that? It's his disciples. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me. Remember, what's the name represent? All the relationship. So that they may be one as we are one. So what are they protected from? Well, the world, from Satan, and even literally from themselves. There was a concern for unity. Let me just say, these guys were diverse. Um, they were tough-minded, strong-willed, independent men. Anybody married to someone like that? Now, don't put your hand up. Um, you, got it. you have someone like Matthew. Uh, he's like a tax law major, accounting minor. The guy, like, counts his beans. Uh, you've got someone like Peter, who's going to be out of the box, probably loud, uh, impulsive, sometimes annoying. You have, uh, in fact, there's a great nickname for two of them. There's uh, James and John. Their nicknames were the Sons of Thunder. So you see, you've got a, the makings of a reality show. You put them all together, guaranteed conflict's going to be coming in there. And Jesus says, listen, I'm pulling out of this thing. They've got to make it without me, so much so that they're a witness to everybody else who sees them. So he's praying for them. And as it goes on, it says, um, I, well, I just got to note this. If Satan can divide, he can conquer, correct? Um, and he, one thing he is praying for is unity, 
One thing he's not praying for is uniformity. You see the difference? He wants unity, doesn't want uniformity. They all have different backgrounds, all have different personalities, different places, and that's God designed. We're supposed to be different. Pastors on this staff, personalities are different. When Mike can go on a vacation, he can take a ride, be alone for weeks on a motorcycle, and come back fully charged up. I'd be gone for a day and a half going crazy. I need to call, I need to be on the phone. I need people around. Different personalities, an introvert, an extrovert. Um, we have different abilities. All of us do. And so God's not saying, I want uniformity. I don't want everybody to look the same, talk the same, act the same, but their lives should reflect my glory just the same. So let's go on. What, what are they, or how are they protected? Now the words Jesus used, he says, by the power of your name. Now this is true in a lot of households. You're going to notice this, and I'll, I'll illustrate it like this. If you have kids in your house, they're going to call you by name. Mom, dad, why? Because, because they know there is power. You have an ability to answer their needs, and they're going to call and keep calling until you answer it. So that relationship defines the fact that they are safe to go to you, they're going to call. There's a sense of security that's completely wrapped up in the relationship we have with God. So what's the securing aspect in our lives? Are we growing in security? The implication is this, is that we're truly growing in confidence in the security we have in our relationship with God. We become more confident in it, more relaxed. Um, we trust it more. We know his character. We don't have to know how everything works out all the time. We just need to know who he is. It stabilizes us, gives us confidence. Now, um, verse 12 says, while I was with them, I protected them, kept them safe by the power of the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. So the scriptures would be fulfilled. That's Judas. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Now, this is a great note here, too. What's one of the things he's praying for? That in this security, joy would be released. How does that work? Um, that if you're so secure in your relationship with God, you know you don't have to try and gain his approval. You have it. That's freeing. You don't have to perform. That's freeing. You're completely accepted. You know what happens when you're that confident in a relationship? You want to be there. That's why there's a psalm, it's 1611, it talks about the joy of his presence. Why do we have joy in the presence of God? Because it's the most freeing and secure place that we can ever experience. And that should mark our lives. That's security. So he goes on, verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them for it. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Um, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them. From the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Now, I want you to notice, he's saying, hey, protect them while they're in the world. What is he not asking? He didn't ask them to take them out of the world. He says, I want them in there. I want them to mix it up. I want them in these places. Why? So the world could see them. So put them in there, but protect them. Take care of them in there. Because uh, his desire is that more people would be drawn to him. That's, there's a scripture, Philippians 2.15. It says, above reproach and in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Now, what's God's heart? Is that our lives are going to continue to bring light in the world because we're secure in who he is. Um, now, uh, number one, just quick review because I'm going to jump in and hit the other ones a little quicker. Number one, is your life bringing glory? Number two, are you growing in security? Um, when you have security, you'll have more unity, more joy, brings attention to God. Number three, are you growing in maturity? Here's a little scripture, just one little verse here. Got to catch it though. It says, sanctify them by the truth. And he says, your word is truth. Now, this word sanctify is not, word, is not a word that we use a lot. So what does sanctify mean? When God, um, it, whenever he used something, he said, well, sanctify it. 
Make it holy. Well, what, are those, what, are, what in the world does that mean? It's basically pointing to the fact that God is so other than us, so different, so powerful. He is all, um, all powerful, all knowing, all wise. So he said, when things are used for my purposes, they're being used for their highest good. So that's what they should be used for. So he said, the word sanctify means really to set it apart for his purposes alone. So if you look through the Old Testament, when God would use, literally, there'd be like they'd use a mountain. He'd say, well, sanctify the mountain. Cut it off. People aren't going to just walk up to the mountain. It's now set apart for God's purpose. If they used a shovel in the building of a temple, it was now sanctified, made holy, set apart, only to be used for that purpose. But use it. Um, and so as you look through the Bible, it, whether it's a priestly garment or even a people, they'd be set apart. So it's not so much of being perfect, even though God says, there's something within you that I'm perfecting. That's true. And positionally, we have this holiness. We can be in the presence of God based on the fact of the cross. But there's a deep meaning, and our maturity is this, is that we're growing um, in the way that we are set apart to be used for his purposes. So how is God uniquely setting you apart to be used? And are you growing in that? There's something in here. Um, what are you set apart for? If you have a car and you drove it here, how you sanctified your car. You're using your car for what it was designed for. You went to McDonald's, had a hamburger. What did you do? You sanctified that hamburger when you ate it. It was used for its purpose. So there's something in this that uh, when God sanctifies something, it's being set apart because there's a mission behind it. You're supposed to be using it. So he's saying, um, sanctify them. And he's referring to me and you, all believers. Sanctify them by the truth. So he's looking for people that are so aligned to him. They're so set apart and they're getting an idea of this is what my life is truly about. That's the maturity that they're, they're growing in. So um, verse 18 says, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. You see that? Set them apart for a mission. Verse 19, for them I sanctify myself. So what's Jesus saying? I set myself apart. I'm going to the cross. He's fulfilling his great purpose. And he says that they too may be truly sanctified, which means set apart, to be used. So here's the question. What is God calling you to do right now? Are you growing in your purpose? Uh, you don't need to overthink this one. But you can ponder it. I'll give you a simple, a simple one you can think through. If you're a parent in here, this will be for you. This would also apply if you, if you have any role where you're helping lead somebody else spiritually, shepherding them, taking care of them, you're a life group leader, anything like that. I want you to notice, even in this chapter, chapter 17, you can see how Jesus um, was a spiritual father in this chapter. It talks about how he spent time with them. He revealed the Father's word to them. He poured his character into them. He prayed for them. He guarded their spiritual growth. He released them to serve God's purposes. He modeled commitment. Isn't, that, isn't there something amazing in that? Jesus is sanctified because he's fulfilling his purpose. What a great model for a parent. Spend time with them. Pray for them. Build character into them. Put God's word into them. Model commitment. Love them. Isn't that a great model? You see, that's what it really means. Even in that role there, you're sanctified. You're growing in that. You're being set apart for his purpose. It could be a lot. We could go through that in a lot of different lists. But that's what the heart of this is. And so how does he do this? Do this? It says, hey, sanctify him by the truth. Just the idea that, you know, we need the truth of God's word. He's referring to the word of God. That we would know it. Because we drift easily. Um, have you ever been around someone who thinks they're always clean, but they're not? You ever experienced that? Uh, I work with junior high students, and you'll catch what I mean. Uh, junior high boys, by day two or three of the camp, they can grow this, develop this odor. And it's like they walk in, and something stinks. And they start looking at you like, oh. You're like, bro, check your armpit, because it's about that time. <laughs> they don't know about deodorant all the time. They're starting to do it. Uh, so it's, it's one of those things, the worst thing to be around is someone who thinks that they don't stink, but they stink. The idea of God's truth, sanctifying by your truth, there's times in our life where we stink, we're off track, we're missing it. 
Um, so he said, listen, you can be perfecting, you can be growing in your purpose, but it's always aligned with the truth of God. So Jesus says, this is, how, this is the process, this is how it goes. So it's truth plus the relationship with Christ. Okay? Number one, is God getting the glory? What's number two? Are you getting security? Number three, are you growing in? There you guys go. Number four, are you gaining unity? Are you gaining unity? Verse 20 says this, my prayer isn't for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in them. Now, what Jesus is talking about, let me just pause for a second. He's talking about something that takes place internally. We have a unity. We have it. We don't have to try and get it. We've been given a unity. We have one faith, one Lord, one hope, one salvation, one truth, one scripture. That unites us. We have unity. And again, it's not talking about uniformity. This is not one of those verses that's teaching that there should be one universal church um, all around. You can't force unity. Um, you can't, it's, it's one of those things where organizational unity doesn't guarantee, or organizational uniformity doesn't mean you're going to have unity. In fact, you can't sacrifice what Jesus is laying out here right before this was, hey, you need to know the truth. So if you have to sacrifice the truth of who Jesus is, something like that, you can't just sacrifice that and then call that unity. He's not talking about this. There's something deeper in this where he says we are unified by the fact that we have one Lord, one faith, one hope, and by nature, that unifies us, and it should. And the deeper we grow in our relationship with God, it's naturally going to draw us together. He, um, I'm going to give you a couple, a couple thoughts on unity. Uh, if you're taking notes, you might want to scribble a couple of these down. But I, as you think of yourself as an agent of unity, how does this practically work out? What does this look like? One is like, like I said, you start by focusing on your relationship with God. Um, you get unity by getting closer to the one we're unified to. It's not from trying hard, not willpower. It's submitting to the Lord. Second thing I'd say is be realistic in your expectations. Do you know it's really easy to get discouraged when you see the gap between the ideal and the real? Uh, I recently, I just got back. I was on a trip up north uh, with my wife. We drove down from Monterey. We drove down Highway 1. A gorgeous drive, by the way. Beautiful drive. And we're cruising, and we envision this, you know, this amazing trip down Highway 1. It was amazing. It was beautiful. And we're going to be making a stop in Cambria. We're about 30 miles out from Cambria. And we, uh, we see these signs. It's gotten dark, and, like, there's nobody on these roads, and there's no cell reception. We looked at each other like, oh, this is the part in the movie they said, oh, why are they going? You know, the gas stations are going to be closed. There's fog rolling across the road. It starts raining really hard. And we're, we're like laughing and joking about this, like, oh, this is funny. Uh, and then we see a line, uh, a sign that says road closed in 30 miles. Like, really? Because it's a long drive back, if that's true. So we stopped somewhere, said, hey, do you know if Caltrans, did they, did they really close this road or did they not? And somebody just came in from the rain and said, no, I just came that way. It's still open. They're just escorting people through from a, a small mudslide. Like, great. I say, so we get in the car and we cruise those 30 miles. Well, we get those 30 miles. And let me tell you, there's not a soul around. Still no cell reception. And we're down to like a quarter tank of gas. And that road is closed. Like, closed, closed. There's not a person in sight. Not a car in sight. Uh, I guess, whatever it was, the, the slide went big enough that whatever, they shut that road. And our detour was all the way back up the coast to Monterey, all the way over to the 101. It was a 170-mile detour. That took four hours because that is a windy road in the middle of a storm. Uh, fortunately, we talked somebody to opening up their gas station. They let us get some gas. But, you know, the idea, the, this is the picture. We can have this great picture of the ideal and the real. Uh, we had a great time the next day. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it was one of those times where you've got to say, man, we had this ideal picture of how this night was going to go, get to Cambridge early, and not happening. When we come to church... You can have this amazing picture of the ideal. And you can get confronted with some of the real. Conflict, challenges. Things happen. And it can sour you. There's, this, there's a thing where people even divorce their church. Um, longing for the ideal while consistently criticizing the real, that's immaturity. 
Um, on the other hand, settling for the real without pursuing the ideal, that's complacency. So maturity is a balance and lives in that tension. Um, there's a scripture that says, be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. There's a theme in this chapter that part of our unity is going to be one of the things that is attractive, and that means we're going to have to consistently overlook faults from other people. Um, people are going to disappoint you. People in this church will disappoint you. Um, if you go to another church, someone there is going to disappoint you. We're flawed, right? There's a great uh, German pastor. He, was, he died for the faith. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I put his quote in your outline. just want to read this. Listen to what he said about people divorcing their church at first signs of disappointment or disillusionment. He said, disillusionment with our local church, it's a good thing because it destroys our false expectations of perfection. The sooner we give up the illusion that a church must be perfect in order to love it, the sooner we quit pretending and start admitting we're all imperfect and need grace. This is the beginning of real community. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even when there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, difficulty, if on the contrary we keep complaining that everything is paltry and petty, then we hinder, the God, hinder God from letting our fellowship grow. Is that a good word from Dietrich Bonhoeffer? So with that in mind, uh, the thought on this, just be realistic in your expectations. I'll give you one more thought on unity is be willing to surrender your preferences. That happens sometimes. You know one of my heroes at this church, his name, uh, some of you know him well, some of you may not know him at all. Uh, his name is Dave McCarron, otherwise known as Pastor Mac. He's been around a long time. Uh, he's doing uh, one of the seniors ministry. The guy for years, he was a youth pastor, even when he was young. He was a youth pastor and at the same time worked with the seniors. Like, I have never seen that in all my ministry, like someone who's doing that and youth pastoring. You know what's amazing about him? He w and he could fit into both. They loved, all of them loved him. He did well in both of them. Um, they would worship differently. They'd do some things a little bit differently. He loved them. He led them well. But you know one thing that always marked Mac, Pastor Mac, and still does to this day? He's always willing to surrender his preference for the benefit of whatever ministry he's serving. Whether it's worship style, the things he personally want to be doing, the guy just lays it down. He does it. He's a model in this church, a hero for sure. But it's a good, a good example for us all, being willing to surrender preferences. Now let me just jump in uh, and, and finish this. Verse 21 says, the reason that this is all happening, it says, may they also be in us so that the world may believe. There's that whole idea behind this unity. Again, we're being set apart to bring him glory. So verse 22, I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. So the first thing he asks is to unify him, and why? It's for a mission to show him off. That's why he said in chapter 13, hey, this is how all men will know they're my disciples, by their love for one another. So that's his heart. Verse 24, for Father, he says, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am. And to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. You know, it's one of those points in this prayer where Jesus says, man, I can't wait for one day when they can really see me as I am. It's going to blow, like they're going to be blown away. And in his last moments on earth, he just lets his mind go that he knows it's coming. That well, there's going to be a day we're going to be there. We're going to see it. We're going to be blown away. And he just dreams for a minute and this prayer just goes, I cannot wait. I want them to see it, and I know one day they will. That's powerful. So are you gaining unity? You know, there's one more that's not in your outline, but I'm going to give it to you. And, you know, as I thought about this one, it's really the one that links all of them together. It's the fuel for all of them. So you can scribble this one in. It's number five on your outline. It's not there, so you can write it in. Number five is this. 
Are you growing in love for God? Is your love for God growing? This is, comes in the last couple verses of this chapter. It says this, Righteous Father, though the world doesn't know you, I know you. They know you, that you've sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known. Now here's the key part, underline this. In order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. You know what Jesus is saying? He said, I'm showing, I'm, I've lived this, I'm going to the cross, I'm doing all this because there's something that's gonna be supernatural that takes place. We're, what he's saying here is we're supposed to love God with the same intensity and passion that the Father loved the Son. Well, how do you love God supernaturally like that? Like, really, that's, it seems like we're set up for failure. That's not that at all. In fact, what this is, it's a picture of something that, that points to, I, I guess, the piece that's so unique and divine about this whole piece. And the only way I can think of doing this is, 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 is giving you a picture of what this looks like. So I need a couple volunteers for this one. Um, Need a, I need uh, three guys, willing men. Good, come on up here. I see a hand back there. Come on up. Don't worry, you don't have to say anything. You just got to stand here. So I need two other people to stand up here. Good, come on over. One more guy. All right, come on up here. <coughs> uh, I need one girl. No, come on up. Yeah, come on up. Come on up. Good, good to see you all. <laughs> all right, he looks very wise. This is God the Father, <laughs> right here. Man of great wisdom. <laughs> Right here. Um, is there a girl up here that I can get up here? Come on up. Anybody? Going, going. A woman. A woman. He's like a woman or a girl. Woman. Good job. Thank you for the save. Okay, great. Hey, JT. You look great. Okay, you're the son. Stand right here. Face your father. This is, I want you to picture something. What this scripture is laying out here is a saying that God the Father has this love that is so deep and intense that his life is consumed with his son. It is. That the love is, um, it's, abide, it's never been broken. It's been unhindered. He would do anything for him. And I can say the same thing about the son's love for the father. It's, it's, it's one of the things, it's so pure, it is perfect. It's one of those relationships you'd look at it and say, man, if I could have that, uh, it would be everything. Well, they live in that. It's the perfect relationship that the Bible lays out with the father and the son. Um, the father had something in mind. He, he said, listen, I have, I want to do something for my son. I'm going to get him a bride. Uh, basically, it creates the world. There's a terminology that's used for believers. It's, it's called, we're the bride of Christ in a figurative sense. But it's this picture where the most, uh, the, the deepest sense of love, intimate love, is this picture of a bride and a groom. And he says, basically, I'm going to send him into the world to get a bride. It's going to be coming at a high price, but I know he's willing to pay it. Um, and so he brings the bride in. You're the bride. Come on in. You represent the church, all of us. And you can stand right here. I want you to notice where she stands. She stands between the Father and the Son. Behind her is the Holy Spirit. You put your hands on her shoulder. No. All right. You're the Holy Spirit right now. Relax. Uh, but do you, now I want, you to, I want you to picture something. This is, this is the picture of the church. We live in the space between the Father and the Son. A space that is so unique and so special and powerful. Where it says, listen, the love that the Father has for the Son, I'm going to give you that kind of love. You're going you're gonna to enter into our love. The way I see my Son, I will see you. The way the Son loves and sees the Father, He will love you. The Holy Spirit stands behind to keep us there. Is there any place that's more secure than this? Is this amazing? Like, do you see the picture of this? You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. I want you to catch that because this, that visual picture is the most secure, the most amazing place that anybody could be put is between the love of the Father and the Son. And the love that he's giving us is really a gift. Know what it means? It means that there is no place for any performance mentality. That means all the tapes that we play in our mind that we're not good enough, we can't do it, all that stuff. You know that's been washed away by the cross? That all those things that we keep playing and thinking that we hear, that's not what they say, that's not what they hear. You are fully loved. You have been created to be the beloved. To be loved outrageously, courageously, consistently, for all time. 
And the, more, the, the heart of this passage, one of the things that makes this thing so unique, this chapter, this prayer of Jesus, is that we get this glimpse into the life that we've been allowed to enter into. That's why I said eternity is consistent relationship where you experience what we've always longed for and deeply desired. But one day we get to walk in it. And that even means today as believers. So there's a sense that are you growing in your love for God? It's a trick question. It's trick in this way. Um, to have a divine love has to be divinely inspired. Another way of saying it is it takes God to love God. So what's our position? Our position is to receive what we've got, what he's been given us. Starts by receiving Christ, coming into the relationship, but it's trusting in that relationship. It's simply saying, like, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, let me love you more. And let him release that in your life. This one pastor put it this way. He says, if you ever make it in the Christian life, it's not because you're a good follower. It's because Jesus is a good leader. Put your confidence in his ability to lead you and not your ability to follow. Isn't that good? He wants to lead you in this whole thing. And, uh, and it's one of those things where uh, as we continue to walk in this, hopefully we get to grow in it. On your note sheet, you're going to notice there's a spot that says uh, irresistible church. What Jesus is creating in us is hopefully as we experience the relationship with God in deeper ways, it's going to draw him glory. As we gather together, it should draw him glory. You know, a couple things should mark the things that we come together. There's a lot of experience in this uh, when you look at this. We're indwelt by him. We're supposed to experience his glory, experience joy, transformed by truth. You know that one of the things as we look at this, what's, a, what's an irresistible church like? It's one that, that really experiences real presence of God, the supernatural, uh, the supernatural tra transforming power of God that marks it, which is perfect in this time. We live in a postmodern age. What's that mean? Well, there's some challenges with it. There's some good with it. One of the good things is that people want something that's real and authentic, and they want a true experience, and that's what the church can offer. Uh, the second thing that should mark every church, if we're going to be an irresistible influence, is this, is that it should, it should always be centered on biblical teaching, anchored in truth. So you have to always balance your experience by the truth. Anything apart from the truth, it's not a valid experience. So it's like a ship without a rudder. You can never be a part of a church that's not anchored in truth. So that's a key thing for us. Third thing is genuine community marked by unity. We all need it. And fourth is that there's clear mission. That our desire is that we're going to be living this out to touch other people. So that's what I'd say. A lot of you are in a life group, a small group that meets together. Is that mission prayed for in your group? I just want to raise that. As you guys are falling in love with the Lord more, as John 17 becomes more real in our life, we need to begin praying just for the people our lives are touching consistently. So I just encourage you to do that in your life groups. Um, today I want to do something as we close which is just to let this soak a little bit. Um, so you can put your notes down right now, uh, put everything down, um, and we're going to experience, uh, for those of you who'd want to, this is, this is voluntary, you can take communion, it's set up around the room. But I want to I lead you into this. And the way I want to do it, I just want you to just set your things down, just bow your head, close your eyes, and just prepare you for, uh, prepare you for communion. The reality of, uh, of John 17, of this message today, is that God is still making himself known. He's still drawing people. He's still giving his love. And it's a season that is not designed to last forever. It's a unique time in history. The love that he's giving, it's a supernatural love. A space between the Father and love and Son, secured by the Holy Spirit. So what's it mean to be a disciple? It means it's beyond logic because there's something supernatural taking place that God is literally turning us, us into different men and women. Being a part of a race of people that the world has never seen. John 17, um, I've changed the, from third person to second person. You can hear this. I want you to hear this as if Jesus was speaking this over you. 
But I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that you may have the full measure of my joy within you. I've given you my Father's word, and the world's hated you, for you're not of the world, any more than I'm of the world. My prayer is not that God would take you out of the world, but it would protect you from the evil one. You're not of the world, even as I'm not of it, but I want you to be made holy by the truth. God's word's true. And as my Father sent me into the world, I'm sending you into the world. I'm setting myself apart for you, that you too may be truly set apart. I have the greatest gift I could ever give. It is supernatural. It's something you can't get on your own. You can't try hard enough. But I want to give it to you. The love the Father has for me. You've been created to be loved. So I want you to receive the love. And I want you to give it out. You are the beloved. You're the beloved. You're loved. You are secure. You are in the space between the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit is truly holding you. And I've given you a picture of my love. It's my glory. It's the picture of the cross. Because this is the way I could bridge the gap and I could show you how much I love you through the cross. So communion is a constant reminder of my love. Today it's a reminder how secure you are in it. So receive it. Rest in it. And thoroughly enjoy this moment. I know you're going to be released in just a second as they begin to sing. Uh, when you're ready, if you'd like to be a part of it, communion is, is, uh, is a picture. It's designed for people who follow Christ. And it's, uh, juice represents the blood of Christ, the fact that there's a new relationship. Our penalty for sin has been paid. The bread is a picture. That Jesus would go to the farthest extreme. So today, in this moment, we could be entering in and experiencing the love that he has for us. And it's the way he wants to be remembered. So when you're ready, uh, you're free to go alone to the tables if you'd like and take it on your own. And some of you may want to come and just kneel and just spend some time with the Lord. You may want to go with your spouse. Um, or you may want to just sit there right now. Let me pray for you, and then uh, you're free to go to the tables. Lord, today I thank you that, uh, that the love that you talked about on that night in the Kidron Valley, as blood was around you, picturing uh, the sacrifice you were about to give, that you thought about us. What an amazing thought. Well, tonight we turn our attention to you. We think about you. And I ask you, Father, for all of us, with the love that the Father has for you, uh, Jesus, would you give us that love? Let us grow in our love for you and for each other. And I pray that this communion time be a sweet moment where we begin to experience your presence. We pray in your name.